0: I just think to myself, I'm going to throw up on this page. (laughs) I try to throw up on the page until I get something
1: that works. Amy Fish is here, bro. Author of I Wanted Fries With That. How to ask for what you want and get what you need from New World Library. Hey, this is CNF, the greatest podcast in the world. Let's hear from our flagship sponsor. Discover your story with Baypath University's fully online MFA and creative nonfiction writing. You know this. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being, quote, filled with positive reinforcement and commitment. They have true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions big and small and it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere, quote. Don't just take her word for it, man. Apply now at baypathedu slash mfa. Classes begin January 21st. You know what also sponsors this podcast? My monthly newsletter. This is going to be real important heading into 2020, so you need to head... Heed... <laughs> can't even read my own house ad. Heed this house ad and subscribe to the newsletter at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. Once a month, it might be weekly. Who knows? No spam. Can't beat it. Imagine this being like the movie This is Spinal Tap, okay? And that turn it up to 11 scene, that just idiotic, hilarious scene. I was feeling pretty manic after a killer session in the weight room today. And I was thinking how this CNF in train doesn't stop. It keeps moving. It stops for no one, man. I thought of Rob Reiner then saying, Well, how do you pick people up if the train never stops? You know, wait, wait. This train it it keeps rolling. <laughs> I don't know why, but that cracked me up. It just did, and I got to say before my lift, I was feeling a bit morose, and this intro was going to be a one-way train to bummerville. But I'm feeling all kinds of good. <laughs> where are my manners? This is CNF, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm your host, Brendan O'Meara. Hey hey. Be sure to subscribe to this. Hot mess of a podcast wherever you get your podcast and consider leaving a little love over on Apple Podcasts. Let's hit hundred man. Ratings or reviews, we're almost there. I hope I've made something worthy of your time and worthy of your endorsement. Means a lot coming from you. Amy Fish, like I said, she's here. She lives in Montreal in the Great White North. She's the Ombudsman at Concordia University and resolves complaints from students, faculty, and staff. She's written for the Huffington Post, Canada, Reader's Digest, and the Globe and Mail. And like I said at the top of the show, the name of her book is I Wanted Fries. With that, how to ask for what you want and get what you need. Pretty rad. What I love about Amy is that she got kind of a late start in this game. I think eight years ago is when she like kind of took up the mantle, if you will. As cool as it is to hear about people who knew from when they were a little kid that they wanted to be a writer. I love that, Amy. Though always had a nose in a book, came to writing only in the last few years. So I, I like that. I like late bloomers and people who come to these things late because they gotta do it, right? So why wait? Here's episode 181 with Amy Fish. Huh. Right. So, uh, actually, to kind of start things off i wonder uh you know what what's something really good that you've read lately Uh, a book or or anything what what are you reading lately that's really just like kind of really just it's sticking in your brain
0: i'm listening to master class and i'm listening to david sedaris's class right now i think i'm on lesson three nice and it's just great to hear him talk about the process of writing and what he's talking about now is where he gets his stories from. And I find when I listen to these things, they stay with me and then I think of more stories indirectly. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I, I listen to his story ideas, I'm driving, so I'm not even taking notes. But then I'm on the elevator going up to my office and I'm like, oh, that could be a story. Ethical Dilemma's on the elevator. And I don't know if I would have thought about that. If I wasn't listening to the
1: master class
0: that he was giving.
1: Nice. What are some other um, it, it's what are some other takeaways you're getting from that?
0: Well, so far that's what I'm getting. He's talking about how to be funny, which of course is a topic very dear to my heart. Yeah. And he's talking and he's talking about exaggerating, which I think I do pretty naturally. If anything, I have to exaggerate less. So <laughs> that one's giving me a laugh as yeah. I'm listening to it.
1: Isn't it kind of nice to with with respect to people like like him, you know, he's got this big stage perform uh, sort of presence. And then, of Mm -hmm. course, and then when you drill down, uh, like I've seen some of the ads of this master class online Mm -hmm. and um, but how it's it's much more muted and that there is like really rigor and work and lots of thought behind what he's doing and behind what we see on stage or on the radio.
0: Yeah, I've actually never seen him on stage. I've always wanted to, and I've never been fortunate enough. So this is working for me, and I just somebody just asked me if I would recommend it, and my answer is it depends what your expectations are. If your expectations are this is like taking a class with David Sedaris, I think you might be disappointed. But if your expectations are, oh, I could listen to David Sedaris being interviewed or I could listen to David Sedaris talk about his work, then I think it exceeds expectations.
1: Nice. Yeah. And have you found that it's, it's giving you a lot of juice, a lot of fuel in the tank to want to tackle the things that, uh, that sort of, um, resonate with your taste?
0: Well, yeah. And I, I actually, he talks about things that I agree. So I find myself talking out loud to him. Like I'm very interested in tiny little stories and I like to write about very little things. And sometimes, especially in creative nonfiction, our colleagues talk about giant stories, and so I feel almost embarrassed. But listening to him makes it uh, feel right to me somehow.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and uh, I, I like that uh, you know tiny little stories. I I love the idea of drilling down on something that's really uh, that is that is sort of minuscule in terms of like physical scale, but sometimes those smaller things actually have a lot of meaning to unpack, right? Right,
0: right. I'll get, I can give you an example, which is the first year that I went to a hippocamp conference for creative nonfiction, I did a workshop with Sarah Einstein called The Collage Essay. And I was so new to writing that, first of all, I had never heard of Sarah. And second of all, I didn't know what a collage essay was. And, so, and I didn't really completely understand that creative nonfiction was mostly memoir. I just I didn't know exactly what I was walking into. And so we had to write our essay and I wrote an essay about making a tuna sandwich. And then it became time the first time I ever made a tuna sandwich was the the piece. And then it came time to share and of course I volunteered to go first and I read about my tuna sandwich and I'm all proud and then the next person goes and they're like we had no food in our house and the cupboards were completely bare. And I remember going to school hungry. And I'm like, oh, no, Amy, what did you do? And then the next person is like, I heard the footsteps on the stairs at night. And I knew he was headed toward my room. Anyway, everyone had these big, deep, terrible secrets. Okay, Brendan, as yeah. <laughs> I was talking about me and my neighbor not knowing that we had to drain the can of tuna. And we were little girls. And it was July. And we made these sandwiches. And they were awful. And we sat under a tree and ate them. I mean, really, Childhood. I was talking about, but it was really nowhere as profound. And I was so mortified after that. And it's taken me years to feel comfortable with realizing that there is a place for small stories and there is a place for big stories and both have their role to play.
1: So you, at what point did you come to uh, writing and and writing nonfiction in, in your life and in your career?
0: Oh, I've only written nonfiction. Mm hmm. So I started writing probably about eight years ago. I started my blog, something like that, eight or nine years ago.
1: And what was that moment like? When did you decide that this is something you wanted to take up?
0: I really wanted to be a motivational speaker as a side hustle because I needed more money. And I thought, okay, I need more money. What do I do all the time? And then I thought, I never stopped talking. Because you know that thing about the 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. And I was like, what have I spent most of my hours doing? Blah, 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 blah. So I said, I'm going to be a professional speaker. And then um, I did a couple of lunch and learns. People invited me to do, to do very small things. And then somebody said, you know, if you want to be a speaker, the best the best way to promote yourself is to write a blog. And I was like, "Okay, I I don't think I'm going to have anything to say, but I'll try it. And I started this blog called Complete Department every day. Not every day, but whenever I posted, I wrote a piece, what I now understand to be a piece of creative nonfiction, almost like a flash essay.
1: Nice. And what were some of your uh, friction points or early growing pains with that and uh, the regularity of keeping that up to build a readership (laughs) and to just enjoy the sheer uh, pleasure of writing, if you will?
0: (laughs) Um, the friction points. Well, I mean, I tried a few different things that didn't work. At one point I did, I posted some photographs and that didn't resonate with anybody. And I tried um, different kinds of pieces. And then I realized that really what people are looking for from my blog, and it's to this day, I still post in it. I try to do it on Mondays. It's, um, it's little stories. And so I just post my little story. I lost a lot of readership when I stopped posting regularly. I did it regularly for a long time, for years, and I had a very decent readership. And then for about a year, I barely posted and I decided I was going to close the blog down. And I went to lunch with a few local bloggers and I said, listen, this is actually a funeral for my blog and I'm not going to be posting anymore. And I think I'm going to tell everybody that I'm not doing it. And I'm gonna, my idea was to do a eulogy, and I'm running this idea past them. And they were outraged. They said, No, that's ridiculous. How can you stop? You have to keep going, even if you don't do it regularly. So I resuscitated the blog. And for the past probably almost a year, I've been posting regularly again, and my readership is not up to where it was at all.
1: Do you find that, uh, that that blogging these days is um, that you find that Maybe you didn't get the some of the old readers back, but you find that blogging now like given that there's so much there's the battle for attention is with social media is so um so fragmented do you find that uh, people are getting more comfortable sitting back into you know the blog the blog blogosphere if you will huh
0: that's a good i I actually don't know enough to even answer that, but I'll say that for me i I think it helps me just write in a disciplined way because i'm not currently enrolled in a writing program or teaching a writing course on any kind of regular basis. And I'm not working on a major project right at the moment. So at least I know that if I'm posting on Mondays, I got to get a piece in. And so it keeps my voice fresh and it keeps me, I don't want to say disciplined because that's a big word, but it keeps me writing for sure. And that's the payoff for me more than the audience payoff right now in my career.
1: So how do you go about, uh, Building, in I, I do like the term discipline and a writing discipline, and um, how do you go about building that into your into your weeks so that you do have this Monday piece coming out?
0: I tend to be a person who writes in my head before it hits the page. Mm-hmm. So I, I toss the piece around in my head, and then Monday morning, first thing, I get up very early and I write it usually.
1: And when you sit, sit down to write, what's your endurance for... For, for
0: writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the for in general, like when I was writing the book, I had a lot of endurance. Yep. Yeah, because I, had, I really wanted to get as many words on the page as I could. And so once I heard what Stephen King could do, it was a bad day for me because then I wanted to hit that word count. And I, I know that some people say that it's not about the word count because then some of your words are awful. But for me, it was absolutely about the word count. And I sat down, and my endurance was I'm I'm blasting through this till I want to have a five thousand word day. I want to have a ten thousand word day. I think I I think I did hit it once in a while. And yeah, some of the stuff wasn't good, but most of it was usable.
1: Yeah, I'm totally in favor of of throwing five thousand bad words to get to like five hundred good ones yeah. every day. Like I, I think I think getting comfortable with writing. Writing shitty, shitty first drafts, shitty words over and over again. That's the only way you get to good stuff.
0: For me, for me too. I I know that different people have different processes, but I'm definitely a quantity person. Like I just think to myself, I'm going to throw up on this page. (laughs) I try to throw up on the page until I get something that works. Um, But my endurance for blogging, I mean, these pieces are small, right? Like 400 words, 600 words. So I don't need that much endurance. I just need to do it. I need to remember that I'm trying to do it weekly.
1: Do you think having a, a relatively later start to this kind of writing, do you think that gave you the, the, the confidence to be able to, to write lousy and write sheer volume to get to that small, like to get comfortable writing bad, to get the good stuff?
0: Well, I definitely got a late start because I don't have a story of, oh, I was a writer my whole life and I have notebooks filled in every... I wasn't that person at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I liked writing in school. I majored in American history and psych. So I wrote a lot of papers and I loved writing papers. And I would write for a newsletter here or there if people asked me. I published scientific papers, too, in my work. And um, so I, I was happy to write them and I didn't struggle. Maybe it wasn't... The writing process was never super difficult for me in that way so I knew that I loved writing but I never never thought I would be a writer so definitely I think it's fair to say I had a late start and does that give me confidence I I guess I mean I don't know I think it's more just once you once you're a writer you kind of have no choice you have to write that's how I feel I have no choice it just comes it just has to happen
1: yeah and i I think too like kind of what I'm Might be getting at is that sometimes people who have had this like writer itch from like being a kid on and then then they major in it and then they try to make a go of it as a a living and then they're trying to hold themselves up on – hold themselves to these standards of of their idols that sometimes they get stifled and it's not perfect enough or pretty enough and it seems like sometimes people who come to it a bit later or later bloomers they have there's a sort of naivete about it where they just do the work and as Oh as, yes. and so that's what i kind of kind of think like you getting a later start you're just kind of like ah like screw it like i'm just going to do it.
0: Yes. I think that's 100% fair and i definitely think my naivete has worked in my favor because the whole story of how i told you about the blog but then how I wrote my first book and how I wrote my second book, it's completely not understanding how to write a book and then being lucky.
1: What lessons have you learned from book to book?
0: Oh, well, my, a few things. First of all, my first book was published by a small press that was owned by my great uncle. And whenever people asked me about it, I said it was self-published, but it was not actually self-published. It was published by what I now understand to be a micro press. So that wasn't very smart of me. If I could go back in marketing time, I would have said it was published by a small press. The fact that it was owned by someone I know is not really that relevant. And that's different than self-publishing, I think, because he had a few titles on his list. That's one thing I learned. The other thing is when I wrote the first book, the first book is 12,000 words. I think it's very, very small and it's not very polished, I feel. And the second book, which is published with the traditional press, they really helped me polish it. And I think the value they added was huge. I was surprised at how actually at how what a big difference it made Hmm. to have them polish it up for me. So that was another. Is that the kind of lesson you mean?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, those things that you that, uh, you know, after writing the first one and building that musculature to do that and then carrying that to the next one and then you know seeing what the the growth is from from book to book you know like oh that's a if i had now that i know this this next book is going to be that much better because i already you know weathered that storm and right yeah
0: well when i wrote the first book also i didn't realize that i was going to write more books so i took my first writing class after my first book if you could imagine Mm -hmm. and so i then i went and i took a class in montreal here where i live called um writing a personal essay and it was a great, great course. And I got, I published a few pieces out of that course. I guess it's called a workshop. See Mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm always behind on the terminology. (laughs) (laughs) So that workshop teacher is still a friend of mine. She was, she's an excellent local writer. And then from there I continued to do workshops and then I found hippocamp conference right after that. And that's where my writing career really began.
1: Oh, that's awesome. And, yeah. and given that you do a lot of your writing or pre-writing, if you will, in your head, uh, mm-hmm. I uh, I know that I, I kind of do this similar thing. I'm always carrying notebooks, but I often have like this notion <laughs> in in my head, and it's um, oftentimes you have this idealized, perfect version in your head. Ira Glass talks about this about that creative gap uh, between yeah. what you're capable of and what you think, uh, like what you want it to be, and what you're capable of. And so, right. since you do a lot of that writing in your head how do you start to marry that perfect vision in your head with what's ultimately coming out and then trying to you know manifest the vision after you've labored through the work uh oh, brandon that's the question right we're all trying to marry <laughs> that
0: i oh i don't know i have no secret formula i mean like you said it's just the work and i'm i'll work like i'm okay to to have it not go not go not go sometimes uh, i'll work on a piece And if I can't marry the vision, then I save it and I abandon it. So I have a few pieces that have been in my computer for years and I take them out every couple of months and try and make them happen. And if I'm not happy with them yet, they just wait for me to get ready.
1: That's great. How have you learned to cultivate that kind of patience with with the work?
0: Well, I guess it's it's a combination of patience and not wanting to let go. Right. Mm -hmm. Like on on the not plus side. There are pieces that I'm not willing to let go of that I don't think are ready yet, but I hope that they'll be ready someday. So I just leave them to marinate wait for me to catch up to them, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes it's it it might just not be the right time for them. It just you've written it. But then maybe five years from now, it's just going to be the perfect moment. You will have stumbled across. Another experience that maybe makes it much more powerful, and then you can exactly. really run with it. Exactly, exactly, yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Right, and and what uh, you, you talked about tiny the you know, tiny story, tiny moments. Um, what are things that interest you the most that spark your creativity that make you want to lean in and write these essays? You know, what really you know sticks in your brain.
0: Well. I write about complaining a lot, so I'm very interested in retail transactions and stories where people try to complain effectively or ineffectively, and they get what they want or they don't get what they want at the end. Mm. So when I hear a story like that, I really like to pull it apart. I'm also interested in dialogue. I'm interested in the way different people speak. So if I hear someone speak in a particular way, sometimes I want to use, I want to write about them because I want to use that voice.
1: Yeah, and what would you like? Where do you feel most engaged in the process? That the the writing part, or the editing, or the rewriting? You know, where on that spectrum do you fall? Where you feel most alive?
0: Writing, writing for sure. Editing is like I don't have the best editing habits because my editing habit is that if I'm working on something big like a manuscript, uh, I have to my inclination would be every time I sit at the computer, start editing from the beginning. So chapter one's going to be amazing. Chapter two is going to be okay. And by the time you get to chapter seven, it's pretty blah because it's only been rewritten a couple of times. (laughs) Right? So that's not a good habit. So I I had to break myself of that habit and just not edit till I was done. And that was hard for me. Mm. I like to go back and see what I did, but then I get overwhelmed easily. Because the, when there's a big volume of work, right, like I Wanted Fries With That has 27 chapters. So I, there's no way I could edit it every time I sat down. I, I definitely felt more engaged when I was writing new work, the new chapters. That was more fun.
1: Yeah, I think Hemingway was always of the – he always needed to reread everything he had written before, Um and then keep, keep going from there. I think he, oh. of course, had to abandon that at some point. Like if you're 80,000 words in, you're not going to mm-hmm. read. But I think uh, I think especially early on, like if he was going to write chapter two, he would read one and, and so forth down the chain. Um, but that way he was just kind of back, right. back in it.
0: Well, thank you for telling me that. I'd like to be in good company. And one thing that was preoccupying me was that I wanted to keep the same rhythm of each story. So I I didn't want it to read disjointed. So I was always making sure that the flow was similar. And so that required going back and and looking at what I had done.
1: That's a really good point, too, especially if something as as an example, like so this uh, book I'm trying to finish up, like it's basically been a 10 to an 11 year project. And I'm a much different writer than I was when I started this 11 years ago. And Mm so I think to your to your point of, you know, reading the things that way, that way you're staying abreast of the tonality of it. Like, because if you can write it quick enough, at least you're kind of the same writer between from when you started to when you finished it. But if it's like this long, long ass project. You might realize like, ah, shoot, I'm like, I'm like so different back when I started this thing. And then you almost have to rewrite the whole thing Because you're better. It's like illustrators who do 100 illustrations in a book. They get better by the end of the illustration. So then they want to keep going back to refine and refine and refine.
0: Right, right. That's a real challenge.
1: So as as you're writing, too, uh, I know sometimes in the middle of a project, it can get daunting or overwhelming. Uh, How do you mitigate the overwhelm of being in the middle of something when you're past the honeymoon stage but you know you've still got a long way to go
0: i set smaller goals for myself and I live by a schedule and I keep my eye on the end
1: those would be the three things I do what's the schedule you keep
0: well I because I work full-time right and I have three teenagers and everybody still lives at home so between my family life which is pretty busy And my work life, which is pretty busy, I have to figure out when I'm going to have writing time. So I have to put it in my calendar. So I book appointments with myself, and then I can't get rid of them. So if I know, for example, Saturday mornings are a time that I usually write. If I know that I'm writing from 6 to noon on Saturday, then I better cough up my pages because I have nowhere else to put that in my week.
1: That's great. Uh, There are some people I know that if they only – they don't feel like they're writers or they can't call themselves writers because they might only have 6 a.m. to noon on a Saturday to do the work. <laughs> have you run across people like that too that don't feel you like know.
0: It? It's so funny, Brendan, because like like I said to you, I was excited to speak to you today because I was excited to be on a writer's podcast like a real writer. And even though I have written two books, I still am not sure if I'm a writer. It's the, it's the funniest profession because yeah. – I get, I'm compensated for my writing. I'm interviewed for my writing. I have writing friends and I still say, do I really merit it? Do I really deserve it? So I can understand that a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. There, I think it's, it's hard. A lot of people are, they, they have this imposter thing and, and they feel like I can't be a writer until I accomplish X, but really it's, you just have to straight, if you're, if you want it, you just have to own it and own the title And and do the work. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I know that they say writers write every day, but for some people it's not realistic. And the other thing is, I know that some people who have um, a lot of other commitments will tell stories about how they wrote on the back of an envelope or they wrote in the car during a soccer game or that that doesn't work for me. I have to take a deep dive. So a better investment for me is half a day on a weekend than an hour every day. Everyone has to get to know themselves and their process, right? But by the time I settle into my project, I can't. I, I get so deeply into it; it's almost like scuba diving. I can't come if I come right up to the surface. Then I have to reemerge the next day, and then I have to come up again, and then I have to go and you know, it's it's too many feet underwater.
1: How did you arrive at the at that and uh, and become comfortable with that particular? Uh, approach of you know of your writing discipline making that date for yourself
0: I just learned what worked for me because I when I try to do it in short bursts I can't get enough done for me to feel satisfied right so I don't it doesn't work for me I could do it for editing I could do it for rewriting that's not a problem but if I'm writing fresh material the more time I have the better I, I also took a few – I've taken in my life a few 24-hour writing retreats where I go off by myself and I write, sleep, write, sleep, write, sleep, and then it's over. And so that that helps me too.
1: I love that. I love this kind of like binge writing approach. Yeah.
0: binge writing. That's it. Yeah. I
1: yeah. think Cheryl Strait is the same way. Like when she's really cracking and she, she'll go get a hotel for a weekend and like just crash out you know 30,000 words or something but then she's not writing every day I'm just throwing that number out arbitrarily 30,000 words I mean that's ridiculous but yeah. it could happen for her she's just going nonstop. stop she's got all her material and I think she has similarly had to have this kind of conversation where it's okay to be a binge writer you don't have to write every day to be be a, this vaunted writer
0: that for me I think I agree with you and also I'm results oriented and so whatever your process is if you put words on the page at the end of it then you're a writer.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I remember you know when I was doing of course when I come out of come out of college and then took a took a little while to get my first newspaper gig even though I was generating actual stories every single day like I didn't feel like a writer until I had like an essay published and then I felt like a writer because it was a little more artistic I guess. So it's right. just so it's like everyone needs to come up with their own definition, but either way you just have to find a way that you're comfortable in owning owning it and then and then trying to just uh, cast off uh, cast off the comparisons because those do not do no, they don't do anybody any good.
0: I agree with you. I agree with you. And own what you're doing. If you're a writer of small little stories, that's okay too.
1: Yeah, and st- uh, comparisons and jealousy is always something I love talking about. And is that something that you wrestle with? Like if you, you know, you'll look over your shoulder and compare yourself to others and, uh, you know, and sometimes, uh, let those toxic feelings bring you down. Is that something that you experience?
0: You know, I'm optimistic to a fault. So it takes a lot to bring me down, Mm -hmm. to be honest. I'm usually excited and happy for people when they're successful I, I'm sorry if that sounds Pollyanna-ish, but that's really my truth.
1: That's awesome. That's yeah. good. It's taken me a while to get to that point. Uh, I, I don't know why it, at first that I had this more like scarcity, zero-sum mindset, but it, it, I've gotten to the point, thankfully, that if if Amy is publishing you know, books of this nature or essays of this nature, it, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that means I can too. It's like, right. you know, it's it truly is an abundant mindset, like the whole rising tide metaphor.
0: Right, right, right. That's one thing. And the other thing is because I came to it so late, my expectations were pretty limited. So I didn't – it's not like I needed to achieve this by a certain age or I needed to make it work. I came with all my experience and I just was like, well, I'll try my best.
1: Yeah, that's, that's another thing too that I – love that you've got this attitude of having come to it late that you have all you know you don't have these expectations of having you know trying to have these prestigious glossy bylines by the time you were 35 or try to get on the the 35 best writers under 35 and all that <laughs> right. all that crap like you're not bogged down and weighed down by that you're just you're doing the work you you're doing the work and doing it because you have a sheer joy and love of it
0: yeah My insecurities relate more to the fact that I'm so out of my depth, right? Like I go to a writing conference, and I really don't know what people are talking about. Like I just found out what AWP was two years ago,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and nobody was able to explain it to me. So I went to just see for myself what it was like, and then I thought, okay, I got the point. (laughs) I don't need to do this again. (laughs) Exactly.
1: I've been yeah, been a few times, and it's like, you know what? After going to hippocamp, I'm pretty much – like never going to another conference. That's, uh, that's unlike hippocamp. It's gotta be like that.
0: Right. Right. And I just like, I really didn't know. So those are more my problems that like, I don't know. I didn't know what a lyric essay was, or I didn't know what things were. And I'm very often texting Laura Lillibridge and saying, what is this person talking about? Like she's my writing mentor and tutor. And she explains all the terms to me. I'm, I'm often at a loss. And also, I could be if I want to be self conscious about something, it's that my work isn't particularly literary. So as far as being received by a literary community, I know that that's not really my audience, because I'm more light and funny. And even though I have a message, I always have a message when I'm when I'm writing, you know, it's not gonna it's in terms of literary prizes or literary recognition, that's not really where I'm headed.
1: I, that's great to recognize that. I know when I went through my MFA program, I got into this, I got into this thing where I had to try to write, you know, you know, pretty or literary, and it took me a, several years to kind of unlearn that and get back to like who I am at the core, which is just kind of mm-hmm. more gritty and ugly and irreverent. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's great that you've that recognition. I think oftentimes when we get into the the MFA thing, everyone starts kind of sounding the same. And it's um uh, they're all trying to impress each other, which you know, you want to connect with a reader, not not necessarily impress other artists if you will. Like you, yeah. know, you want to write stuff that's going to be read. And so you and you ultimately you have to just you know, find out who you are at your core and just write to that and double and triple down on who you are.
0: Mm -hmm. And so now that I'm sitting in this position and I never, I don't have an MFA, I don't know if I should try. I don't know. Like I, it's really a question mark. It's something that I'm grappling with right now. I'm wondering, does it make sense at this point or, or not? You know, when you're basically self-taught, it's hard to decide whether, more formal education will help or what will it do to my voice? You know, these are my, these are my concerns.
1: Yeah, they're definitely a great question. The fact that you're even asking those kinds of questions means, you know, you can have a good dialogue, a, a good conversation about it. Uh, I would, in my estimation, I think knowing what I know now, I think I could have benefited from just writing more, doing more work and then reading more extensively. Right. And then, right. and then just experimenting, just fa- seeing what works, seeing what sticks against the wall, and and just just doing work. I think he, there's just no substitute for just doing a lot of bad work and seeing where where your talent starts to surface from. Yeah, and, w- and when you're when you're working and you're doing uh, you know various you know research or however you however you frame that, how, how do you go about organizing your your work and your notes and And so you can access it when you're ready to do your favorite part of the writing process.
0: I'm very paper oriented. So I have print things out and put them in binders. I take notes by hand. If I'm interviewing someone, I don't record it. And then I don't even type them up. I put the notes into a sleeve in a binder and then I organize the binder. Mm. Very old school. And the reason I do that, I have a, a few reasons. One is because I find I listen better when I'm actually taking notes and the other is because i'm not a journalist i'm writing about the experience of this conversation as it relates to me so i'm okay not that that i can't go back and fact check what i wrote down because i'm i'm interviewing you and i'm writing about how i'm perceiving what you're saying as part of it so i don't mind that all i have to look back on is my own notes i'm a, i'm it's a deliberate choice
1: what other artistic media do you like to consume that helps kind of inform your writing?
0: Oh, I'm a huge reader. I was a reader before I was a writer. I mean, I, I was a kid who always, even though I said to you my experience wasn't that I had tons of notebooks, but I had tons of books. I read and read and read and read and read as a kid. I always had my nose in a book, and I read very widely even now. So I, I'm I could have on my nightstand a mystery, a book. Right now I'm reading. Um, you know, there's a new book out about the semicolon, so I'm reading that. I'm reading a YA novel, that's a romance, and I'm reading and I'm listening to David Sedaris. So what informs me to answer your question is variety.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you draw inspiration from from movies or documentaries too?
0: I like to, but if my time is limited. TV is going to go. Yeah. So I'm not a huge Netflix watcher. I'm always behind. I always have big dreams of what I want to watch on Amazon or whatever on Netflix. And then I don't really have time. I'm also a knitter. So my TV watching has to belong with my knitting projects. If I'm working on something, then I'll watch and knit.
1: Do you have a, a, a selection of books that you like to reread? Uh, to, no. Uh, no? No.
0: Nope. Life's too short. I don't reread because I can't, I have so much ground to cover. Yeah. Right. Like I have piles and piles of books. First of all, I would like to write a mystery. And so I read a lot. I try to read mysteries and how to write mysteries. I'm nowhere with that. That's an example of something that's at the back, been at the back of my head for years. I, I even took a workshop on writing dangerous characters and I went to a, a crime writing conference, but I don't, ha- I have trouble with plot. So I'm not there yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a yeah. rereader of of books. Oh, really? I use the same exact logic because because there's just too much out there. I'm never going to read it all. So I'm just I might as well read I, I read Great Gatsby <laughs> every single year. And um and I just do like I know what I'm like I you know, a little kid that can watch Frozen probably like every single day, and so I kind of right. try to take that mindset. It's just like if I like something a lot, I might as well just drill the hell down on this thing and figure out what's really going on in the cracks and crevices of everything. And I, and so that's kind of been my approach. I used to be like, oh, don't funny. reread anything, but then I'm like, you know what? I'm not. I'm never going to read it all. So I might as well. If something really connects, I might as well just try to reread it a lot and see what's going on.
0: Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, the same logic can get you to a totally different place.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with and with your um, with your latest book, what were some of the things that you were kind of uh, some of influential books or, or essays that kind of helped inform your approach to the to the writing of it?
0: Malcolm Gladwell helped for sure because he talks a lot and writes a lot about asides and unanswered questions. And I heard him speak about how it's okay to have, to write about something that you don't know the answer to. And so I wrote a chapter in the book about a complaint that remains unresolved. And when I wasn't sure whether or not I should include it, I thought about him and what he said, and I just was honest on the page and said, this this was unresolved and here's why, and here's why I'm including it. And I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Another thing is, um, I like footnotes and asides and details. So when I read a piece that has footnotes, I'm always very excited. And I included that in that informed my work as well.
1: Did you have exactly. any uh, sticking points that were, as you were writing, uh, I wanted fries with that, that was, um, you yeah, know, they that were kind of hard to power through?
0: Well, at a certain point, I felt like I was repeating myself mm. because the the basic theme of the book is that you have to stand up and complain, even if you're not doing doing it perfectly. So even though each of the 27 chapters has a lesson, the lessons are, are different. The basic tenet of the book is, if you don't complain, nothing's ever going to change. So here's how you complain about this. Here's how you complain about that. And I just had to convince myself that each story had another nuance that was something I had to offer and I had to convince myself that, that different things will resonate with different readers, so it's okay to to give the message in a few different ways.
1: And why do you suppose people are so uncomfortable uh, formally complaining in a way that uh, allows them to feel like justice is served or they're getting getting their way? because we all complain, but there's a different kind of complaining that actually gets things done.
0: My theory, my working theory is that a lot of us don't do it because we don't know how to complain and still be nice. We want people to like us and we don't want to make waves, but we also want our voice to be heard. And that's why I I write about it. That's why I wrote the book and that's why I write the blog. And that's why I talk about this all the time, because I think that most of us really believe that we want justice to be served, but we just don't know where to start. And I think it's learnable.
1: I know, like just speaking from experience, I know my, my mother is very sort of timid, and um, she passed that on to me in all, every every single way. And, and she got it from her father. Like any time mm-hmm. there was any kind of, let's just say, uh, an an injustice of some kind, and he would tell her, "Be like, he'd be like, Jerry, just, just, just let it go." And just it'll all blow over, and so like she would want to like stand up, and then he just told her like, no, just let it go, just just let it blow over. And so as a result, you know, you just kind of learn, you just get steamrolled all the right. time.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So
1: so like your book is te- is in a sense is teaching you like listen, there are there are ways to go about this where you won't get rolled over every single time.
0: Right, and also that you have a moral responsibility to stand up not only for yourself, but for everyone else who's going to have the same experience.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it's uh, how, how did you develop that muscle over, over the years?
0: Oh, I think I was born with it, to tell you the truth. My dad is a, was a defense attorney, and my mom taught emotionally disturbed kids. And so everything about my family growing up was helping the underdogs all the time. So I just grew up believing that justice needs to be served and it's my personal responsibility to make sure it happens. Mm.
1: And it's something that, uh, that I was thinking like, what would I, you know, what, what is something that I have always stuck in my craw that I'd never had the courage to complain about? And I, I think, I think a, a big one would be like people who don't pick up after their dogs on, on walks. And uh, how would you, how would you approach that?
0: I would say, Hey, Hey, excuse me, you you didn't pick up after your dog. Do you have a bag? Did you need a bag? Did you need help? Like I would sort of say it as something like, like they made a mistake. Like, Oh, maybe you didn't see your dog went here. Yeah. Or do you have a dog?
1: I, uh, I used to have two and, and so, okay. Yeah. So like this used to happen. Uh,
0: Cause if I were, if I were walking a dog at the time, I would say to the person, hi, ha- oh, you dropped it. Your dog just went, I have an extra bag. Here you go. Yeah. Like that. If I didn't have a dog, it's a little more awkward, but then I might say something like, Hey, excuse me. That's my lawn. Or I take, you know, I walk in this park all the time. Pick up, please pick up after your dog or maybe you didn't notice something gentle. Yeah. I would start there.
1: Yeah. It, it's fun, Like starting it's uh, it's hard though. Even if you're doing it, start trying, trying to be gentle. You feel like you don't want to it. Cause when you, when you complain, you're being, of course you're being judgmental. And when you're people, people's hackles can go up and uh, it's a mad, like it's, it's tough. That's a hard, hard waters to navigate. I think for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the key is doing it in the least judgmental possible way. So that's where I would lead off with, did you run out of those bags? Oh, I hate when that happens to me. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. That's why if you have a dog, it's kind of easier. Yeah. You could say you saw them on sale or you could lend one to the, you could say to the person, I have one for you, or I can pick this up for you. But maybe did you notice?
1: And with your with your writing and where you want to take take your writing, um, you know, where, where do you see yourself? You know, what are some things that you're looking to accomplish? And, uh, you know, what are some of those goals that are on your horizon on your, you know, near and short term, uh, short term and long term?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Well, in the short term, I'd like to get some of those essays that, as I told you, I've been sitting on my computer for years, I'd love to get some stuff placed. So I've, I've been working on polishing some, some things that I think could find a home somewhere, but that's a lot of work for me, because there's researching and pitching and, and fixing them and tracking it and, you know, that whole, that whole thing. So that's a short term goal. In the longer term, I would like to write another book, for sure.
1: Do you think it would be? Uh, well, you know, you you said you wanted to write a, write a mystery, of course, but uh, in the nonfiction world is, is there's, what's the, you know, you've done, you've done this book, which is kind of, prescriptive in these, these anecdotal stories of how to complain better, Uh, you know, what vision for some of the nonfiction, uh, maybe a nonfiction book you want to write? um, You know, what might you want to tackle?
0: I would be interested in finding a narrative nonfiction story that I could dive deeply into maybe something historic, maybe a figure, maybe a story that happened that could involve a lot of research, and then recounting the story in my own voice sort of a, a bigger project, I think that would be something exciting to work on.
1: And something that struck me that you uh, that you said at Hippocamp, and I think you were echoing um, Lisa Romeo uh, saying like aiming for 100 rejections yeah. in a year. Uh, that that yeah. really stuck with yeah. me. And...
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I did say that. And then she actually wrote to me after saying she was echoing someone else. Now I can't remember who it was. <laughs> so <laughs> we're a few echoes down the road, but I, I have tried... Not this year, obviously, because this year my book came out in October, so it's been hectic. Like, I don't have so much um, psychic energy to be trying to get 100 rejections, but I really am nowhere near 100 submissions. So it's really hard to get 100 rejections. It does change your frame of mind, though, because you are excited when you get a rejection. You add it to the file.
1: Yeah, I I think it's just a great... (laughs)
0: It's like not bad news.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I think it's just... (laughs) I I don't know. I, I, I like that approach not to because the the sheer fact that you're just throwing more darts at the board, you're going to get closer to bullseyes. It's right. Yeah. Cause I, I have a feeling yeah. a lot of people, they they might have one or two pieces and they submit them maybe one or two times a year when they get rejected. It's like, you know, they're they're, you know, crying in their cereal. It's like, yeah. well, what what do you expect? Very few people are going to hit a home run on. on on one submission. But if you just get used to that repetition and that, that will breed its own kind of competency and confidence too. And you Mm -hmm. will get more published. It's just by sheer numbers, you're going to get published more if you aim for that many rejections.
0: Right. And I, I just got a couple of rejections in the past few weeks and it's, it always stings a little bit, but my relationship with rejections is not, they don't wound me particularly because they just mean I'm writing. If I if I'm not getting rejections, it's because I'm not getting acceptances. I'm not doing anything. I don't and and I don't know if that's due to age and expectation because I came to it later. If it's because I I, um, I have another job, so it's not like I'm a writer and that's all. Um, that's my whole focus. So maybe that would make it more painful for me, um, or maybe it's just like I said in general. I'm just very optimistic, and I think it takes a while to find a home for your. your- For your piece. So I have rejection. Okay. I rule that one out next. I mean, you can't be a writer and not get rejected. So I I have trouble relating to how upset people get. Like I, I know that people get upset, they are in bed for days. Like you can't you can't do that. That's expensive time that you're spending being wounded, that you could be spent working.
1: Right. Yeah, it's. A, I think a great way to – and I've heard some people talk about this too. Like they have like a tiered submission process. So they have their type – A, well, their, their one, two, and three, and four tiers for the essay or whatever. And it's just like – it's almost like before starting any project or a business or a podcast, you should probably have how you want to end it built into its right. initial recipe. So it's like – That way, you know, okay, when this is rejected here, we're just going right to level two and then level three.
0: Exactly. Right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's – yeah, I I kind of – I love – I don't love getting rejected, but there are so many – because it means you're in the game. It's like the Teddy Roosevelt quote that Brene Brown has, like the man in the arena. It means you're in the game, and that's all that that matters. And the longer you're able to play this game and keep going – you know eventually it's you know things will happen for you but you just got to be comfortable yeah, there it's you can't get first downs every single time you know you're a hockey right. hockey person, of course being canadian so it's <laughs> it's you know you're taking lots of shots at the net to get that one goal so it's yeah that's yeah you just got to be in it exactly
0: exactly and i also uh, um if i have a piece like i have one piece that i wrote which is about broccoli and it's about um a complaint that i once received where somebody thought that there was a vendetta against her husband in this nursing home because of the broccoli he was receiving. And I think it's such a good piece and it's been rejected easily 25 times. So I have to realize that there's something wrong with the, like the piece is not working. I have to, I have to figure out another way to tell this story because the way I'm telling the story is, is clearly not effective. At a certain point, you do have to say it's me.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's such a subjective game, but yeah. But to your point, like if it's re- been rejected 25 times by 25 different people, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, you do have to the take last, a step back.
0: And the last one was one of those rejections that took three seconds. Like <laughs> I sent it and the and the editor wrote me back. Oh, great. I'm looking for new pieces. Thank you so much. I'll get right back to you. And then like within a half an hour, it was like, no, this one's not for me. What else do you have? <laughs> like it. <laughs> so, So I haven't played with the broccoli for a while, but I think I'm going to take it out.
1: That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it's just an anti-broccoli agenda that's that's right
0: that's right
1: <laughs> what would um, as we kind of wind down here um, uh, what would you you know what advice if someone's out there struggling right now you know it just can't seem to maybe get the traction they want or they feel a bit beleaguered and just run down by the grind of of this kind of work you know what might you say to that person to to tell them to, to, to keep going? What, what, how would you approach them if you're having coffee with them and they're feeling down on their luck? You know, what would you say to that person?
0: I would say you chose to be a writer for a reason and get back to that reason. What about this interested you? What about this excited you? Try to get back there and think about your early motivation and how can you bring it back to the forefront? And at the same time, I would also say to the person, maybe you need a break. Maybe you need to be kind to yourself. Maybe this is a moment for you to refresh and recharge and take the time to, like you said, watch those documentaries, listen to those podcasts, do some of the things that will inform your work later on.
1: I think that's great. Amy, where can people find you online and get more familiar with your work and then maybe where they can find it? I wanted fries with that and uh, just get more familiar with your work if they don't know you already.
0: My website is amyfishwrites.com. And my blog is called Complaint Department. You can find it on the front page of the um, of the website. There's a button that says Blog, and all my old blogs dating back to I think 2011 are all still available online.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm so yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful that you you're able to carve out time on a Sunday to do this, Amy. Like, thanks so much for for doing this and and for oh, thank and, you. and for writing the book. It was a lot of fun to read, and uh, I you. think it'll help a lot of people out. And uh so yeah, thank so th- th- Thanks so much for doing this. I look forward to a chance when we get to do it again.
0: All right. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks for having me.
1: You got it, Amy. Take care. I honestly don't know how these podcasts are getting done every week. If I'm being honest, I was telling my wife that I don't know how it's happening. We're both pretty overwhelmed with work and life, and I I told her this morning that I have no memory of these podcasts coming together. I'm very detached from it in a way. Like I'm floating somewhere outside of myself. It's very dissociative and weird. Anyway, subscribe to the newsletter, CNFers. A little tease. I get a lot of books. You know this. I read a lot of books and I often donate a lot of them. I'm thinking, why not just randomly raffle them off to people who subscribe to the show? I mean, why not? You listen to the show. You're likely interested in a lot of the books that from the people that are on the show. Why not just give some away? You know? Why not? You know, you're giving me a little bit of your time, a sliver of your time every week. It's the least I can do. I do this you I might as well throw in Some sugar. So, anyway, subscribe to the newsletter. Like I said, good stuff coming once a month. No spam. Can't beat it. (laughs) hey. If you deem this show worth sharing, link up to it on social media. You can tag me in the show at CNFPod. Though, as you know, maybe you don't. But I'm scaling a bit back on social media hard. So, if I don't give you those mad props, that's why. Got a lot of work ahead of me, and I really want to focus on that work. So, and you know this drain doesn't stop. And also, if you can do interviews, see ya!